For the kids who were left behind, have I got a story for you. <laughs> I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching here, team here at New Hope Chapel. Really glad to see you all here this morning. So this week I had an opportunity to play some games with my five-year-old granddaughter, Addie. You remember Shoots and Ladders as a kid, right? And Candyland, right? Two big popular games. Um, I bought those because I felt it was part of childhood that a child should experience. But she and I sat down to play these games, and at one point, playing Candyland, after winning three games in a row, she started to move my piece for me. Grandma, I'm going to do your turn. But she was cheating, cheating in a way that was going to benefit me. She would get the blue card, and then she would go find a blue space way over there, closer to the castle that we were headed to. I said, Addie, that's not the rules. I'm supposed to, Grandma, let me handle this. And so we got to the end of the game, and that is a direct quote, and we got to the end of the game, and she said, Grandma, you won! Good for you! She was, and so, you know, and so I was kind of tickled by the whole thing. I let her do it, because, of course, I love her, and she's adorable. But later on, I heard her telling her dad, I had to help Grandma win that last game. She's getting old, and she can't play very well. Okay, so there's zero strategy when it comes to Candyland, right? Uh, Unless you're willing to make up your own rules like Addie. She had lots of strategy. But you pick up a card. The card tells you where to move, basically. Or you spin the spinner and you move that number of spaces if you're playing shoots a ladder. The game is entirely up to chance. Being old and decrepit like I am has nothing to do with it. You just do it with the luck of the draw, purely luck of the draw. Well, have you ever felt that way about your life? Um, Everything was out of your hands, and it's all the luck of the draw. Maybe there was a personal circumstance, like an illness or a tragedy, that made you feel absolutely helpless. Or maybe it's looking at our country's current problems, or world events like North Korea shooting nuclear uh, missiles around. It's scary. Well, we're going to be looking at a story today where the powerless became powerful where the oppressed became the victor, where the weak became strong. What we can learn from this story is something that can transform me, you, all of us, from inadequate to powerful. It's a story that's found in the beginning of the book of Judges. Now, just to give you a little historical background, the nation of Israel had uh, left Egypt, wandered in the desert 40 years, went into the land with Joshua, and were all settled into their new digs. And the battles for possession was over. In the last of Joshua, this is what we read, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. You know, they were kind of what we might be tempted to call Israel's greatest generation. They were the ones. They were the ones that entered the promised land with Joshua. They were the generation that believed and trusted in God who led them there and fought their battles for them. They had lived good lives after taking the land. But now, as Judges opens, Judges 2, we read this. All that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work of what he had done for Israel. You see, after that generation died, the next generation, things were deteriorating rather quickly. 
And rather than serve the God who had given their fathers the land, love the God who delivered their whole people, millions of people from slavery, they abandoned him and began to worship the pagan gods of the Canaanites who lived among them. And the rest of of the uh, book of Judges is a continually repeating cycle. And I sort of did it here. So you see this over and over again. Every story runs this same outline. First, the people do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God runs out of patience with them and sends an army to oppress them, to get their attention back to him. And under the oppression, they exist for a long time, sometimes a really long time, and finally, the people cry out to the God who they know who can save him. And in response to that cry, the Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge. And the judge delivers them out of the hand from the oppression, and then finally, the people live in peace for a while until the people do evil in the sight of the Lord. So you, keep, you see this cycle returning, but it's not really a cycle that continues just on one surface. This is what it does. It goes, or it goes this way, and then it comes down a little bit further, and then a little bit further, and a little bit further. And you see a general deterioration to the ju- in the book of Judges to the point where even the deliverers God is raising up, not so great. But that's what was there. So it, it's this, this basic decline with the people of Israel and their relationship with God. So our story today is in the continuing, or very early in that continuing uh, downward spiral in, in Israel's history, sorry. It's from Judges 3, um, verses 12 to 30. So I'm going to read it with, uh, for you. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. By the way, that's an important detail later on in the story. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that Ehud sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in this cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly And the refuse came out. Ew. I'm actually going to explain what the refuse is later. Stay tuned. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became anxious. But behold... He did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor, dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed the idols and escaped to Sarah. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill 
country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. He said to them, pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Cool story, huh? Let's pray and ask God to help us understand it. God, I thank you for your presence in this room and for your presence in us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches and guides and helps us to understand spiritual truths. I ask God that you would work in each heart. You would keep me out of the way and that you would do your work in us and that you would use your scriptures to transform us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what we just read is a complete turn in the cycle. And I I missed those verses at the beginning. But it started with, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what was that evil that Israel was guilty of? Were they, you know, having no integrity in their business? Or were they, you know, letting their lawns go to pot? Or I don't know, I can't even think of anything. But no, those were none of those things. What it was, was uh, it's defined in three, chapter 3, verse 2. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Now, the pagan god Baal was believed to be responsible for fertility and crops and herds. And Asherah was, or Asherah, that's a plural, but Asherah was a female counterpart and companion to Baal. And it kind of makes me wonder about their motivation, the desire for prosperity, maybe, in seeking those gods. More crops, more livestock, more fertility. So it really was a very self-serving turn of loyalty. So God strengthens an enemy, and he sends him to in to bring a nation to his senses. So we've got a map here to kind of show you. You can see here's the, the Dead Sea, there's the Jordan River, and then here's the Sea of Galilee. Got your bearings? Mediterranean here. So Moab was down here. It was in the lower part uh, on to the, I was going to say to the right, to the east of um, the, the Dead Sea. And this was their nation, okay? And so Reuben's tribe had taken this land, or was given this land, and Gad's tribe took this land. Well, Moab came up, they joined, tri- uh, uh, joined forces with Ammon and, and a different enemy, Amalekite, wait, I don't remember the name. Anyway, I'm not even going to try. But uh, they came up, they took over Reuben's land, they took over Gad's land, and they crossed the river and went as far as Jericho, right here. Now, Jericho, you'll remember, was the first city that the nation of Israel took over when they entered the Promised Land. That was their first big conquest, the one with the walls falling down and all that kind of stuff. So he ended up, the King Eglon ended up here, um, was kind of his, his point of, of where he ruled from. He brought with him 10,000 troops. So he had a lot of backup, military backup. I don't know that he spent all his time in this region. I suspect he was down here, but he came up to here, um, we, I believe anyway, from, from what I kind of tell from Scripture, it doesn't really say, and, um, and Jericho. Now here's uh, 
Ehud is from this area right here. Okay, so, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he goes up into Ephraim later on. So that kind of gives you an idea. So 10,000 troops in the land is a threat to anyone who would think of rebelling against him. And he continued that oppression, King Eglon did, for 18 years. That's a long time, 18 years. But that's how long he was there. And then finally, Israel cries out to God for deliverance, and we read, The Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, the left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon, king of Moab. So what's the significance of uh, Ehud's left-handedness? This is a question that kind of vexed me this week because I'd heard a sermon this summer about Ehud's uh, left-handedness and uh, I was stirred by it, moved by it, and I thought, if I get another a la carte message, I'm preaching on that one. And sure enough, I got one, so I said, Ehud, this is the one. But when I researched what he said, it wasn't true. So that's really sad. But I do want to... But that's what usually happens to me, I have to admit. When Steve passes out passages of Scripture, I said, oh, I'm going to speak on that one because I know exactly how I'm going to apply it. And then I study the passage, and I'm like, well, maybe not so much. The passage has to direct what we speak on. But um, the Bible doesn't seem to use that word for left-handed um, as a weakness at all. Um, it, it literally uh, means uh, right hand bound up or um, you know, of no use or something like that. Uh, but you have to look at how it's used. And in two other contexts, it's only used three times in the whole Bible. There are two other contexts. One is in Judges, later in Judges, chapter 20 and 16. And we read that the Benjamites, again, Ahab's tribe, had 700 left-handed men that could sing a, sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Well, that doesn't sound very weak to me. And then in First Chronicles, again, some of David's mighty men from the tribe of Benjamin says they were equipped with bows using both the right hand and the left to sling stones to shoot arrows from the bows. So in all three cases, it really seems like the left-handedness is actually being cited as a strength and not a weakness. There goes my theory. So I think we should probably take away a picture of a man who had very positive potential on the battlefield. He was also a guy who was known for his integrity. How do I know that? Well, uh, he was chosen to bring the tribute to King Eglon. A tribute would most likely have consisted of domestic livestock, gold, silver, other precious commodities. You don't hand all that over to somebody you can't trust. So he was a man of integrity for sure. So what was this tribute for? I had an interesting study on this word because the Hebrew word is used a lot in the Old Testament. And the, the, the most times I've seen it used is for when God is talking about the sacrifices that are being brought to the altar. Sacrifices. The animals that were killed to pay for the sins at the tabernacle. It was also used by Jacob when he was on his way home back to the brother who had threatened to kill him. This is what he says. I will appease him with the present tribute, sacrifice, that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will, perhaps he will accept me. So he was sending that tribute as kind of an appeasement to the anger of his brother. It made me think of a little bit what I know about the mob. I know about the mob because I watched The Godfather. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of an expert. But anyway, what, what they would do was they would go into to the shopkeepers in New York City, in the movie anyway, and they would collect money. And what did they call it? 
protection. Hey, you pay your money. We protect you. We allow you to do business in our city, right? Protect them from what? Them! Protect them from them. So this is what the tribute was about. Delivering a sacrifice to this pagan, King Eglon, to keep him from crushing them. They were paying him off. And even Eglon's name adds to that sense of the situation. It comes from the Hebrew root for calf, as in small cow, right? The calf was a very common pagan god. And it was what uh, the word, that word was used for what Aaron created when he had all the gold brought to him and he threw it into the fire and out came this calf, right? When Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Um, many times a calf is mentioned in the Old Testament to describe a pagan god. They call it a molten calf. So here the Israelites go to present a sacrifice, tribute, to the pagan god for his protection, for their protection. So don't miss the point the writer's making with his use of words. Before the group leaves to go deliver the tribute, Ahad decides to go prepared. He makes a double-edged dagger. It's about 16 to 8 inches long. Cubit is from the elbow to the top of the fingertips. That's the length, about a half a yard. And straps it to his right thigh for easy access for his left hand. So I did spend some time really wondering and trying to find out, was Ehud planning this big assassination and this coup that was going to take over the land again? Was that the plan? The scripture doesn't mention anything about it being a plan. And to me, it seems like maybe, and I know it's an argument for sil- from silence, but it just kind of seems like maybe he, it, he didn't know he was going to be doing this up front because we don't have any indication from the story that he was. He could have brought the weapon. Why did he bring that then? Well, in case they were attacked by robbers carrying all that gold and silver and, and animals and all because the road to Jericho and beyond was known to be treacherous and filled with thieves. Or maybe he took it for when they got to the king and all of his soldiers, they ran into trouble and he would have some way of defending himself and his people. And the fact also that he called the troops later on after Eglon is killed, he has to summon them from the hills and they all come down and meet. It doesn't seem like they were standing at the ready for when when he did the deed. So we don't know. And we don't know for sure if Eglon was staying in Jericho. The text doesn't tell us how far they traveled, but it's curious to me that the text would talk about uh, the city of Palms, which is Jericho, um, and mention that specifically. I don't think he lived there full time, but if he knew that a tribute was coming, that it was time for them to get get their payment, um, he may well have gone up to that summer palace in beautiful Jericho, which had been rebuilt um, since that first generation. So they delivered the sacrifice. Imagine how humiliating it must have been, delivering that tribute. And I imagine King Eglon kicked up the humility up a few levels. Conquering kings thought very highly of themselves. Some even considered themselves to be a god. And I can imagine that as they tried to give him that tribute, he let them have it. He insulted them. He insulted the God that they had cried out for deliverance. This was a guy who was engorged on power and on comfort. We know he wasn't a nice guy because his servants were too scared to even knock on the door 
to make sure he was okay. And once that deed was done, I can imagine the silence of the group of tribute deliverers as they trudged toward home. That injustice must have been intolerable for them. They got as far as Gilgal. It's a town north of Jericho. And there they stopped at a memorial built by the people of Israel to the pagan gods. And I wonder, did the stories of God's power and might wash over him as they headed home with their heads hung in shame of the God who miraculously delivered his forefathers from slavery from the mighty Egyptian empire, the God who provided for a nation of millions out in the desert for 40 years faithfully, the God who promised Joshua every place where your foot will step, that I'll give to you. I've already given it to you. I believe that then and there, Ehud had a defining moment. I imagine him face-palming as he stood there looking at these foreign gods. Wait a minute. What are we doing? How would they become so far removed from the powerful God who could defeat the armies of Egypt with a sweep of the Red Sea over them? who gave an unskilled army of warriors defeat over even the most strongly defended cities of Canaan. Why had they abandoned that God and worshipped these pagan gods who've done nothing for them? I imagine Ehud stood shaking in his sandals. It all became crystal clear. The powerless in that moment became powerful. The weak in that realization, now was strong. He knew what had to be done, and it was going to start with him. So without a word to what his intentions were, he sent the others in the party to continue on their journey home. And he turns around, and he heads back to Jericho. He's on the road again, but this time, not in his power. He's now functioning as an instrument of God, of the living God, And even as he approaches the king in his private chamber, he says, I have a message from God to you. He fearlessly plunges that dagger in to the king who has so many rolls of fat that the the whole thing goes into him and the fat closes over the handle. And then the text says refuse comes out. Literally, excrement, feces. TMI, I know. But this often happens in a sudden death. People release their bowels. The writer's letting us know with that statement that the man is very dead. Ehud makes his escape by locking the doors behind him, and the servants smell the excrement, and they believe that he's in there relieving himself. Steve told me that one. So no one wants to disturb the king in the middle of that. So they wait hoping that he'll signal when he's finished. And those precious minutes, while Ehud, uh, while the men, the men are standing by the door wondering what to do, Ehud makes his escape, past all the guards, and makes his way back home. And he heads straight for the hill country of Ephraim. The text tells us, though, that he again passes by those idols on his way. And I wonder, did he give them a good swift kick on the way by? Or maybe spit at them? I would have. Don't know if he did, though. He goes to the hills and he blows his trumpet to echo around the mountains, 
to summon all of the people to battle. So they stream out of the towns and they come to meet him as the message spreads. And as they gather, this is the words that he gives them before he leads them on. Pursue them, for the Lord has given us, your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. That pagan calf has become the sacrifice. It's time to go down to Jordan and to the Jordan River and to stop that retreating army. They head to the fords, and a ford is a place where a river can be crossed over by foot. And they take those places and force the enemy to have to go over the Jordan River as they retreat in deeper water. And, of course, that makes them sitting ducks for the Israelites to pick them off as they try to go in. The Bible tells us one, a 10,000 robust and valiant men were struck down that day. Not one escaped. And Israel enjoyed an unprecedented 80 years of peace. We just have to stop and give God a hand right now. Such a great story, isn't it? We've got a hero, we've got intrigue, we have blood and guts, big victorious battle, and even a little bathroom humor. Pretty good. It's a great story, but why is it in the Bible? So what? Here's what, where the rudder, a rubber meets the road. So what? How does God mean this story, this ancient story, uh, to impact us today? Well, as I studied it, I was reminded of another story, an, an event that came many years after Ehud, and it was the story of David and Goliath. You remember that story. Um, he heard David as he was delivering food to his uh, brothers. He, he heard the Goliath mocking and threatening the troops of Israel, and he was outraged. And this is what David said. Who is this Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And as he comes face to face with the giant armed with nothing but a slingshot and five stones, this is what he says. You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I can't read that without getting goosebumps. David got it. Both of the, uh, the uh, heroes in our, this lesson, Ehud and David, they got it. That God is powerful and he's ready to fight our battles for us. But he comes to us on his terms. Well, what are his terms? Paul gives us some insight on that after an experience with his own enemy. God allowed what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh, something or someone that caused him a great struggle. Three times he asked God, take it away. And then finally, God gives him his answer. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Why did God bring this lesson into Paul's life? Well, he tells us, to keep me from exalting myself. Sounds like Paul had a face palm moment, just like Ehud did. Without God's intervention, he would have come to start thinking of himself as something pretty important because, as he puts it, the surpassing greatness of the revelations he was receiving from God. Paul's thorn in the flesh saved him from himself. Isn't that like us all? We beg for help from God, and when we get it, we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. And uh, God is blessing me, so I must be doing something right. 
And in that feeling of self-sufficiency, we move away from God. You can't do something from self-sufficiency and do it in faith. And faith, trusting in God, is the opposite of self-sufficiency. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. God knew that his provision had the potential to allow Israel to move away from him. In Deuteronomy, before they even entered the land, this is what uh, he says to the Israelites. You may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it's he who's giving you power to make wealth. Feeling strong, feeling confident, confident in our own power, that is the kiss of death in our relationship with God. We say power corrupts, and it most surely does. But I'm telling you, comfort can corrupt us too. When we don't need, we stop looking for God. And that's when our own personal downward spiral can start. Fortunately, God doesn't leave us to our own devices. He's a God of kind intentions. And he knows what we need and he knows how to give it to us. And he uses many things in our life to draw us back to where we should be, acknowledging our need for him and our own insufficiency and responding by clinging to him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in conclusion, I got to tell you, Ehud's not the only one who comes to meetings prepared. I came prepared. I have brought a terrifying, powerful weapon. This plastic straw. Now, you're probably wondering why I would call it that, because, you know, you won't get arrested for concealing this weapon and walking down the street. You won't get stopped at airports for bringing this weapon on a plane, right? But you take this deceivingly innocent straw and drop it into a wake of a tornado, into the raging tornado, and yes, it becomes something to dread. This picture was taken in the wake of a tornado, and if you look closely, you will see a plastic straw embedded into the trunk of a large tree. When powered by a tornadic wind, this little guy is to be avoided at all costs because it could go straight to your heart. We may be powerless to affect change while we operate in our own strength, but if we get ourselves out of the way, the empowerment of God can use us in mighty ways. My kids will tell you, I've often told them, I've never been sorry when I choose humility. I said it to them all the time. And you know what, parents, this is a great lesson that you can give to your children, to not jump in and try to rescue them every time they run into adversity, but to teach them to trust God and to pray about it and then watch him work. Watch his power. And you can help them do that with, in their lives. Humility is God's way. In humility, we drop our burden of performance because it's at that moment when we acknowledge our inadequacy and get ourselves out of the way that God releases, releases his unfailing power. And now anything is possible. The process, though, has to start with the correct acknowledgement of reality. Ehud saw it. David saw it. Paul saw it. And look what he did with them. We're never disappointed when we choose to trust God. Never. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this fun story that's in the Bible. I thank you for uh, the, the wonderful truth that we can see 
that uh, you are mighty and able to do all things. Please help us to always be conscious of you, to lean on you, to wait on you as we face the challenges in our life, big or small. We want to be a people that live lives of dependency on you alone.